0: Good morning again, and welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. My name is Dustin, and I get to be one of the pastors here. Uh, This morning, we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, uh, which was the great outpouring and the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and disciples of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. In many ways, uh, Pentecost is the culmination of the gospel of Luke and into Acts. It was the same author. And Pentecost uh, is a profoundly important day for us to remember as God's people. Uh, We commemorate it because it was uh, 50 days after the Passover, so uh, we do know generally it was this time of year. Uh, But I would be uh, remiss if I didn't reference what's going on in our country these days. And um, I'm sure like many of you, you are struggling and upset and hurting in many ways, And uh, I can't help but think today is Pentecost Sunday, and in many ways, Pentecost speaks to our moment uh, in a profoundly important way. Uh, But before I get there, I I do have a question for you, and it was a question I must credit uh, Dr. Greg Thompson uh, for asking me a few years ago. And it's simply this, friend, um, do you think there is a wound on the soul of our country? Do you think that there is a wound of racial division and racial hatred uh, on our country? Uh, Maybe you've experienced that wound yourself. Uh, No doubt almost every American can think of negative experiences uh, over the racial division and frustrations and hurts and sins that uh, we've all seen and experienced and now are unfortunately watching Uh, seemingly live on social media and the news. Uh, When he asked me that question, I couldn't help but remember uh, years ago as a young, know-nothing college freshman at the University of Mississippi. Uh, I was raised in the suburbs in Virginia where I didn't really, you know, think that racism was still alive. Uh, But I'll never forget my uh, freshman year in the dorm. We lived in a terrible dorm. It was awful. Dorms are way better now, apparently. But this Uh, wretched dorm where I was living, housed a lot of guys. We were all freshmen, and a friend of mine came, and we talked for a few minutes one night, and we didn't really talk about anything important. I don't remember anything that we talked about. It was probably stupid. We were college freshmen. What were we going to talk about, right? It was probably football or something. Uh, By the end of the conversation, my friend Mark turned to me, and he said, thank you. And I said, sure. And he said, no, thank you. And I said, yeah, what for? And he said, you're the first white guy to talk to me I said, what are you talking about? And he said, the last time a white person on campus spoke to him, uh, it was in a truck while he was running around campus, and a truck pulled up and they called him the N-word. Mark went on to be a pastor, if you can believe it, and now so did I. That was my first experience uh, seeing the wound in our country. Uh, I was reminded of that wound again last year when I attended church at Bethel Baptist Church. A wonderful Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, But when I went there, uh, many of you know that I I went there, Uh, I was the only white person at church that Sunday. I remember walking in and feeling kind of uncomfortable, Uh, but it was uh, uncomfortable because I could realize that everyone around me was uncomfortable. Um, You know, I have been living in Oregon now for about a year and a half, and I did not bring nice clothes. And uh, I hadn't shaved, and I'm a, you know, six-foot-three white guy with kind of a scraggly beard and hair that looks like a bird's nest. And I walked into a historically black church in um, a bad part of Birmingham and sat in the back like every visitor does. And I mostly got stares from people who were concerned. I attended that church because my friend uh, Thomas Wilder is the longtime pastor there, and we're in the same doctoral program at Beeson Divinity School. And I I offered to attend church and hear him preach. Um, But anyway, when I was on the back row, uh, Reverend Wilder came up to me eventually and said, hey, you got to come with me. And what he did is we went back to his office and we prayed. And right before we went back into the sanctuary, we went around door by door. And you know what we did? We went around and locked every door in the sanctuary. And, you know, we have deacons who do that. And I said, you know, Thomas, why are you locking every door? And he said, because we don't want anybody messing with us. And I said, people mess with you? And he said, yeah, actually, just a few months ago, a group of trucks circled the sanctuary while we were worshiping. And so we locked the doors, we went into the sanctuary, and Thomas made sure that I sat on the front row. Uh, And I realized sitting on the front row with Thomas, the reason I wasn't allowed uh, or uh, it wasn't wise for me to sit on the back row was because they were worried about why I was attending their church. And so Thomas made a point to let everybody know that I, too, was a pastor. And then he made me speak from the pulpit, which was terrifying and honoring all at the same time. Uh, What you may not know about Bethel Baptist Church is it is the most bombed church in American history. It was bombed by white supremacists three times uh, throughout the 1960s. Uh, The longtime pastor there, uh, Thomas, told us that the organist Uh, still bears the wounds and the scars from when her Sunday school building was bombed. And she's still worshiping the Lord every Sunday. So all that to say, uh, those are my very, very small, um, sort of uh, seemingly minor experiences with the wound. But uh, no doubt that my short recounting of these stories is reminding you of your experiences of this wound. So let me ask you again, is there a wound on our country I mean, don't you see it? There's a wound on the soul of our country. And friends, this is why I think it's so important for us today, of all Sundays, uh, as we see looting and riots and the anger of man, and we see people dying in front of us on videos, uh, for us to consider what the Holy Spirit was doing on Pentecost Before we jump into there, though, we've been reading through the Gospel of John, and I just want this to prime the pump a little bit. Jesus did say this to the church. In John 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, Friends, what if the healing of our country is the greater work that the church of Jesus Christ is meant to do right now? Uh, With that in mind, let's pray and then let's study Pentecost. Holy Spirit, uh, we praise you and we thank you that you point us to your son, Jesus Christ, who in his body tore down the wall of hostility between all peoples. And in the place of two men, you created one new humanity. Uh, Father, thank you for preaching the gospel for those of us who are far away and for those of us who are close. Holy Spirit, would you heal our land? Holy Spirit, would you work in your church to do greater works, to do the great work of the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciling sinful people to you, God, our Father. May we fulfill your law to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, expecting the victory to belong to you. Amen. Uh, well, if you grab your Bible, uh, I'd love for you to flip over to Acts chapter 2. And what I want to point you to uh, in the story of Pentecost uh, is what has happened is Jesus has uh, died for the sins of his people. He has been raised to life Uh, He has shown that he is going to make all things new and this sad, sinful, broken world is going to be made new that the kingdom of God is coming to bear. And at the beginning of Acts, he tells his disciples... That he is going to ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit just as he promised. That he would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And remember that baptized means immersed, right? So you could hear it as God's people are going to be immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. The apostles and the 120 overall disciples are gathered together. Uh, These are men and women who follow Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit falls on them. It fills the room and tongues of fire hover over their heads and they go about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the kingship of Jesus. And what they do is they, they burst out during this festival when all of God's uh, people, all of the Israelites have been uh, skewed through all the different countries. And now the, all the Israelites are back together. And these 120 uh, disciples uh, start proclaiming the good news in all of the different languages. It's one of the most miraculous things we see that the Lord does as the disciples speak all of these different human languages and all of these uh, Israelites, all these people who trust in the Lord, they hear it in their own native tongue. And so what happens, of course, is God is showing us that he is undoing the curse of the Tower of Babel. If you remember in the book of Genesis, God scatters the people uh, into different uh, groups of people in different languages, and now we see at the last days that God is proclaiming a kingdom that will be of all people. Uh, He's fulfilling what the Psalms will say, uh, the glorious things of thee are spoken, O Zion city of our God, that people will be ascribed to the record book from all the different languages, tribes, and tongues, and they will be deemed as having been born of Zion. It's the hope of the prophets that the languages of the peoples would be turned into a pure speech. It's the hope of Isaiah 28 that the Assyrians and the Egyptians even would know Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, But what's amazing about Acts chapter 2, and as you read the book of Acts, uh, you and I may be tempted uh, to understand that what's happening at Pentecost is the disciples are proclaiming the gospel to all of the nations. All of these different ethnic groups are hearing the gospel, and the disciples are bringing all of these different ethnic groups to the true God of Israel. Uh, But in fact, what's happening in Pentecost is it's fulfilling what Paul says, that the gospel is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Uh, These are Israelite Jewish people who are hearing the gospel. And in fact, it's not until later on in the book of Acts that we start to see Gentiles, non-Jewish people, uh, a generic term for all the different ethnicities that were not Jewish. We we, we don't see them coming to faith until later on in the book of Acts. Uh, One of the most famous people is an African man, a man from Ethiopia. You can read about him. A a deacon named Philip shares the gospel with him in Acts chapter 8. But it's only in Acts chapter 8 and following that we see this overwhelming flood of Gentiles coming to faith. In fact, this is a very important point for the development of the book of Acts and the development of the church. Uh, In fact, it's not until Acts chapter 10 remember Pentecost is chapter 2, it's not until Acts chapter 10 that Peter realizes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all of the Gentiles, for the whole world. In fact, that's the whole story of Cornelius, right? Uh, A centurion for the Roman military comes to faith. He believes in Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls on him and he and his people speak in tongues and prophesy and they profess Faith in Jesus. And the amazing thing all of chapter 10 is about is it's amazing to Peter that the ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling a broken world to God, involves the different ethnicities, the different groups of people. In fact, it's so surprising uh, for Peter that when he goes back to the church, the early church, and he recounts what they're doing. The early church is just as astonished that the gospel is for all peoples. That they cry out in Acts eleven eighteen 18, when they, that is the church gathered, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So you see what's happening at Pentecost is it starting the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, But even at Pentecost, the full weight of the gospel is something for the disciples to continue to grow into. The gospel was for the Jew first, then the Gentile. The gospel was for Cornelius and Ethiopians. And even in Acts chapter 11... The need for all of the people groups of God to be reconciled to the only true God comes as a wonderful, uh, awe-inspiring uh, surprise. Acts eleven twenty-eight. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. Now, I don't know about you, but... Um, it's pretty gut-wrenching to watch what's happening in our country right now. Uh, the outrage, uh, the anger, the looting, uh, the hatred. And of course, uh, we must condemn any sorts of violence or looting. But we must not be surprised by what we're seeing. Uh, I know uh, for myself, it's hard to think this is our country. Uh, but friends, friends, think about it this way. I mean, this is the gospel truth. This is how Jesus describes the heart of a person that does not know the true God. Uh, Jesus himself says this in Mark chapter 7. He says, for what comes from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, Pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Sounds like a pretty good list of everything we've seen on the news this past week. Uh, Paul will go on and he'll explain our spiritual problem this way. Uh, We already studied this, but this is a reminder. This is uh, Titus chapter 3. And Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Uh, friends, uh, unless the Holy Spirit immerses the heart of a person in its new life, that is our state. We hate one another and are hated by them. We fill our times with passions and pleasures and envy and strife. So what you and I are seeing before our very eyes is a spiritual reality in physical demonstration. And we cannot be surprised by it. But now the question, of course, becomes, well, what's the cure? What's the cure? This is a a tough issue, right? Because on one side, people will say, justice, uh, justice, hear our voice. That's what we need. That's the cure, a wholesale reordering of our society. And of course, on the other side, there is the argument that order and force must be used and everyone just needs to go back to normal. Uh, But friends, what if the gospel offers a radically different way, (laughs) That gives the best of both of those things and yet is not encapsulated by either one. You know, the early Christians at Pentecost understood that there was one hope in this world and that there was one true king and he was coming to bring mercy and justice, grace and truth uh, that by no means will God clear the guilty and yet he will absolutely perfectly forgive all those who repent and call upon his name. You see, the hope, the third way, if you will, is the gospel. In Titus chapter 2, as much as Paul lists all the terrible things that can come out of the heart of a man, uh, when Paul's really just echoing Jesus, Paul goes on and he says, But, (laughs) but, yes, yes, we hate one another and we are hated by each other. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, friends, the hope for our country is the same thing that is the hope for your soul and the hope for your family. And it's nothing less than the very gospel of Jesus Christ, who reconciles sinners to a holy God. And he gives us his law, and he commands us to obey his commandments, which is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The new commandment is really no new commandment at all, is what John will say which is you are to love one another. You see, friends, that's the hope. Um, I've been often asking myself and the staff uh, these last few days, uh, can the center hold? <laughs> it feels like division's really strong right now, and people are pulling each other further and further apart. Uh, can the center hold? Well, friends, I think it absolutely uh, is uh, determinative on what you think the center is. Is it wholesale reordering of society, or is it going back to society as it was? Or is it more education, or more police, or less police? Is it for everyone to hold to your political views? Uh, Friends, if if that's what you're holding out hope for, if you're thinking that's going to hold the center, (laughs) uh, friends, I don't think you know the depravity of the human heart yet. (laughs) And the only thing that can really reconcile what we're seeing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does not turn the world upside down. He puts the world back to rights. The center can hold because Jesus Christ himself is the center. The other thing I want to talk about today, if you'll bear with me, is I've been thinking a lot about what James says. Uh, No doubt that uh, you have come to this passage has come to mind as well. Uh, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. And friends, uh, we're watching anger all over Uh, the news, aren't we? Cities across the country are filled with anger. And yet I also wonder how many of us watching the news are also filled with anger. I think the better answer, of course, as Christians, uh, is to understand exactly what it is that we're seeing. Not only are we seeing the sinfulness of man, uh, I would be remiss as your pastor and your spiritual guide if I, if I did not remind you of what the New Testament constantly teaches us about the sin in this world. And that is very simply that you and I, we do not struggle with flesh and blood, Our struggle is not with people of a different race or a different political party or a different perspective or a different socioeconomic status. Uh, Friends, uh, the people who are spiritually minded, the people who are immersed in the Holy Spirit know these words. This is Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, of course, they're not saying rulers and authorities in the sense of our government or our officials. That would be a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying. Who are these rulers and authorities? Who are these uh, entities in the cosmic realm, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Uh, well, I can't go into everything as to what that is referring to, but what I can tell you is that Christians know profoundly that there is a spiritual battle of demonic forces raging against God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But they have been dealt a decisive blow of defeat. Yes, there are evil demonic forces Uh, There are uh, entities, the rulers in the spiritual realm, but they have been given a fatal wound when Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Uh, Their destiny is sure and their destruction will not wait. Uh, But as we watch the news, our tendency is going to be, of course, to circle the wagons and find out who we think our enemies are. Uh, No doubt you've probably already begun to keep a record of who your enemies are. Uh, But friends, do not be duped and do not forget the works of Satan. His works would make us make enemies out of one another. But what does Jesus Christ tell his people to do with their enemies? To pray for them. To pray for them. What does Jesus Christ say to those taking him to the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, what Jesus Christ did on the cross is he dealt the decisive blow against all of the demonic forces, and though they rage, they will not win. Uh, Think about it this way. In the book of Colossians, when Jesus is explaining the gospel, that our record of debt is nailed to the cross, Paul takes it somewhere that you and I would not understand unless we knew that part of what Jesus is doing is defeating the works of the demonic forces, in this world. A Colossians says that this way, and you who are dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I have no doubt that many of you know exactly what those words are referring to, but Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. So who are these rulers and authorities that Jesus Christ has disarmed and given the fatal blow to? It's the same one Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. It's the evil forces in the cosmic world that are stirring us up to hate one another. Paul goes on and he will tell Timothy later on that uh, we should be patient with those who uh, do not know the Lord. We must not be quarrelsome. Uh, We must patiently endure evil. We must correct our opponents with gentleness. Why? Why? Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they, that is our enemies, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. No doubt this week you have seen many people captured by Satan to do his will. But how are we supposed to respond? Are we supposed to make them our enemies? Are we supposed to hate them? To seek their destruction. Paul says it this way. We must not be quarrelsome. Kind to everyone. We must patiently endure evil. And we must correct them with gentleness. We must pray that God would lead them to repentance. You see friends. Um, the center can hold. Because Jesus Christ himself is the center. Uh, God can And he will heal our land. What you and I are called to do is to be immersed in the very spirit of God, uh, to pray the things that he would have us to pray for, to pray in his name for peace and for justice and for reconciliation. Let me just finish with this. Uh, More could certainly be said. Uh, But, friends, do you see the wound on our country? Do you know what can heal it? Let me phrase it this way. Do you know who only can heal it? Only God the Father, through the ministry of his Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, could ever heal this. And church, don't forget Jesus' words to us. These are words of hope and of victory. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Friends, on this Pentecost Sunday, is there any doubt what the Holy Spirit would have us to pray for in the name of Jesus Christ? Friends, it's an invitation to pray with me. Holy Father, we pray through the Holy Spirit and in his power that you would heal our land. Lord, that your church would arise, that we would love our enemies, that they would be brought to repentance. Lord, that we would not be duped by Satan to make enemies out of those who would one day become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, may we be peacemakers and truth seekers. Father, would you bring justice and peace to our land? In the only name that could ever bring this about, in the name of King Jesus, who is coming again, amen. Mm